like to make a, a quick short uh, announcement before I hand it over to uh, Vikas ji. Uh, we have the part two of uh, uh, this uh, webinar, uh, a retrospective prospective on uh, uh, Professor Meenakshi Jain's work on August 9th. So all those who have registered for today's uh, session, um, uh, they don't have to register again. They can click on the same uh, URL to join the August 9th uh, session. So I'm... Um, uh, trying to share my screen, just one second. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, the second part of the webinar. So the interlocutors for this webinar would be Shafali Vaidya, Abhinav Agarwal, Dr. Shwadesh Singh, and Hari Prasad N. Um, and the discussion would be primarily focused on Professor Meenakshi Jain's uh, books specifically and uh, current uh, you know research uh, i request everybody to uh, not uh, miss uh, this uh, event uh, on august 9th i now request all the the other the, the, uh, the other speakers ps uh, narasimha garu and meenakshi jain to enable their videos and i request uh, vikas ji uh, to take over from here and start the panel discussion Thank you, Srinivasji. After these three wonderful expositions uh, by our three esteemed speakers, uh, which have given us uh, various perspectives, the historical perspective, the legal perspective, and uh, what Ashokji called beyond the brick and mortar kind of perspective. Uh, this issue, this uh, conflict is so old and uh, the legal complications are also so much that it is uh, obvious that we will have a lot of questions. In fact, we have around 130, 40 questions. So covering all of them would be near impossible. We need another webinar to uh, accommodate all the questions. There are certain questions which are in the nature of despair and lament. There are some questions uh, which are which have not been asked uh, uh, very frequently in, and one or two questions. In fact, I will add my questions in that regard. But there are some very popular questions. So we'll begin with those popular questions. The first question I would like uh, to be addressed is by Meenakshi ji. A lot of people are interested in knowing the role of historians, our historians. In particular, uh, Irfan Habib and Romila Thapar. Uh, others also are, have been mentioned like R.S. Sharma and all. So I think in general, this is a question about the historian's role in uh, muddying the waters. So can you please, uh, because uh, Meenakshi didn't, uh, didn't have this that much of time. I mean, uh, within the time, she tried to fit in all the historical perspective. But this is something in which a lot of people are interested. Madam. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for this question. I'm really glad that it has been asked. Uh, because uh, this was something that I wanted to discuss in detail. See, the role of... Are you able to hear me? Yes, ma'am. Very much, very much. Okay, okay, okay. The role of the left historians impressed no court, neither the Allahabad High Court nor the Supreme Court. If you go through the proceedings of the Allahabad High Court, it has passed severe strictures on them. And the Supreme Court said to them that these are your opinions, not facts. Now, what exactly did the left historians do? Is the left historians decided on a strategy? That is the big historians, R.S. Sharma, uh, R.S. Sharma, uh, Romila Thapar, Irfan Habib, and D.N. Chha. The big four, they will not themselves go to court they will send their students. Their students means not 20-year-olds, but their students would also become professors by now. And they worked as a team. Their students were people who had done their PhDs under them and had subsequently flowered under the patronage of these big four. Now, I would like to first of all specify the... Uh, role of Professor Irfan Habib because there are other questions, but
but this is something that your viewers should know you know in 1992 when the babri masjid was demolished a big inscription fell from the walls of that masjid that inscription was 5 feet by 2 feet so you can imagine what a big inscription it was it was in perfect condition because it had been embedded between two walls but when it fell it broke into two but that did not make it difficult to decipher that inscription since that inscription fell from the walls of that masjid in view of the entire huge public that was there it was clinching evidence that babri masjid was built on the site of a temple so we would think that the left historians had now to accept defeat no they did not and this is what why i want to emphasize professor irfan habib soon after the discovery of that inscription said that this inscription has been planted there so we asked who has planted it and it's an inscription which is 5 feet by 2 feet it's not a small handkerchief that you can put in your pocket and uh, place over there in view of the media of the entire world so uh, he said uh, and we said where was it where was it before so he said actually it was stolen it was in a private collection so please name the person who had this inscription you are saying it was in a private collection please tell us the name of that private collector and did he display it in his house a 5 feet by 2 feet inscription would not is not something that he could hide in his basement so then when he was confronted with these questions he changed his strategy and he said no it was not in a private collection i have come to know that it was stolen from lucknow museum and then we contacted lucknow museum and that lucknow museum said this inscription that professor irfan habib is talking about is from treta ka thakur temple it reached us it was found by anton furer and it was deposited in our museum and we still have that inscription they and they published the photograph of that inscription and they said this inscription is so badly defaced and damaged that it has no value because we cannot read anything from it whereas the inscription that was found in the time of the demolition was in perfect condition and gave the history of that temple who built it in which year which was the ruler who was the person and who was the inscription in honor of so all those details he gave and the you know that are available and professor irfan habib misled the entire nation throughout first he said it was planted there then he said it was from a private collection and then he said it was stolen from lucknow museum on all these counts he was proved by the court to be wrong but till today he has not explained his shifting stand and not apologized for deliberately misleading the other thing that about the left historians is that they in court challenged every cherished belief of the hindus on ayodhya first of all they said ram worship is an 18th 19th century phenomenon which is totally wrong because we know about the popularity of valmiki ramayan we know that every region of india produced its own version of the ramayan in its local language we know that scenes from the ramayan were engraved on temples walls from the 3rd 4th century ad and we have the first archaeological i mean architectural evidence of ram worship there is a terracotta which is dated to the 2nd century bc and that terracotta you know terracotta doesn't survive but it has survived somehow and it's dated to 2nd century bc and it shows ravan carrying away sita and sita is thrown showing her, throwing her ornaments hoping that somebody will find her through this now why would an ordinary artisan 
make a terracotta of a scene from the Ramayana in the second century BC, unless Ramayana was very well known. All these facts the left historians disregarded. And the most clinching fact that in the 12th century, three Vishal Ram temples were made and all three Vishal Ram temples had inscriptions on them and those inscriptions are available to us. Two of those temples were built in Madhya Pradesh. The inscriptions dating those temples and the ruler who built them are still there on the temple walls and the third was the temple at Ayodhya. So inscriptional evidence of three important temples of Ram in the 12th century are there and the left historians are saying that it is Ram worship is an 18th, 19th century phenomena. If you look at the writings of uh, British administrators when they came to India, they are struck by the popularity of the Ramayana. And you look at uh, Grouse who has written Mathura Gazetteer and he says Tulsi's Ramayana is in everyone's hand. And he says ordinary people, they can recite the whole thing by heart. So to ignore all this and to say that Ram worship is an 18th, 19th century phenomena is a total lie. And all other lies that they told, they were totally debunked, snubbed in the court. And one more thing that I want to say, you know, all the left historians, right from the beginning, they said uh, Babri Masjid was built on vacant land. There was nothing beneath it. Now, when the ASI started excavating at that site on the orders of the Allahabad High Court and pieces of the temple below began emerging, left historians modified their stand and they said Babri Masjid was built on an Eidgah. So there is an Eidgah below the Masjid. And the court said that till now, you were telling us that Babri Masjid is built on vacant land. Now we have ordered excavations, the ASI is carried out the excavations, and now when structures of a Hindu building are emerging, you are saying it was built on an Eidgah. And the court also said that book that you wrote, it talked about D. Mandal. It asked him, it said that before the excavations, you wrote a book. In that book, you argued that it is built on vacant land. If it was built on an Eidgah, why didn't you say this at that time? So the shifting stance of the Deaf historians is the biggest stumbling block to a settlement of this dispute. As I told you earlier, all the evidence, all voices before 1989 were unanimous that Babri Masjid was built on the site of a Ram temple. It is only the left interventions that delayed this process. And the left can also be hauled for contempt of court because after the Allahabad High Court gave its judgment, Aligarh Historians Forum published a 90-page pamphlet. And that 90-page pamphlet made such wild allegations against Justice Sudhir Agarwal and the ASI. The ASI carried out excavations and it, and it said they're, they're both partisan. And it's surprising that nobody has hauled Aligarh Historians Forum uh, in court. Uh, Aligarh Historians Forum said in that that the ASI uh, was, you know, uh, not professional in its conduct when it was carrying out the excavations. And the Allahabad High Court had specifically said that ASI has to carry out the investigations, excavations every day in the presence of lawyers from both parties. It has to record in a register the findings of every day and that register has to be signed by representatives of both parties. So with such close monitoring to suggest that ASI was unprofessional, I think was just being totally unfair. It is my firm belief that the Supreme Court verdict, the, the, the only verdict that was possible, if you ask me, this verdict could have been given by any court of India decades before, it was only the deliberate delaying tactics of the left historians which put us through all this agony. So, uh, ma'am, 
you have devoted an entire chapter to the distortions misrepresentations and lies by our historians so which gives uh, which raises one more important question ma'am if the historians these historians can lie on oath in the courts how difficult would it be for them to uh, misrepresent or lie in the classrooms or say in their books also so in that regard how important is it for us to correct the distortions which have kept kept crept in i i am not bothered about what they write in their books but at least the school curriculum because that is where uh, most of the indians get their primary grounding in history and historical understanding you see this was also a very carefully thought out strategy that we will erase any other version of history only what we profess and propagate will be disseminated and they knew very well that majority of the students don't study history after leaving school so they were determined to capture the students when they were young so from the class 6 textbook to the 11th or 12th standard textbook every book was written only by a leading left historian i do not know of any country in the world where a professor of eminence will write a textbook for class 6 why because they didn't want the child to be exposed to any other view of history and if i can just give one example of how they distorted history the medieval india textbook which was written by professor satish chandra it had to discuss the execution of guru arjan by jahangir now jahangir was very clear about what he was doing and he wrote it in his autobiography unfortunately for left historians he wrote in his autobiography that this uh, i decided that you know this guru had to close his shop and i ordered for him to be eliminated and he given it very clearly now satish chandra did not want students to know that jahangir has ordered the execution of guru arjan so what did he write he wrote after the death of guru arjan by jahangir i mean after the death of guru arjan by jahangir a student who has not studied history before will he understand from this that death means execution so this is the extent to which they went to distort and i just want to give you one more example because there are queries for other speakers also uh, in the present book of history for class 7 which has been in circulation for two terms of upa that is 10 years five years of nda 1 and the sixth year nda 2 that is for 16 years it is being taught in the class 7 textbook they have done away with chronology so when you do away with chronology you don't realize who is from here and who has come from outside you don't you're not taught about the arab and turkish invasions and what is absolutely shocking is that mahmud ghaznavi is introduced in the same paragraph as the great chola ruler rajendra chola so a student who has not studied history before he will think that rajendra chola and mahmud ghaznavi were both rulers so this is the level to which they have gone to this so you know you can have a different point of view but their objective is to distort and deny indian history that is my objective thank you very much ma'am uh, i would request you to stay with us for a little more time uh, we have questions there is one question regarding uh, which i would like uh, narsimha sir to answer sir there are a lot of people asking uh, as to what repercussions does the ayodhya judgment have on kashi and vishwanath so uh, as we understand now there is a places of worship act and many people have asked, asked about it about the legality of it uh, sir my uh, question was that there is an arbitrary date 19, 15th of august 1947 set for it so i mean howsoever uh, momentous that date might be but can the courts can the judiciary uh, tell people the believers to recalibrate their faith according to a particular date 
i mean uh, hindus should have one kind of faith in their gods in ayodhya or kashi before 1947 and uh, they should then after 1947 they should have a different kind of a faith so what would be your take on this uh, places of worship act what is its legality and whether uh, we should challenge i mean uh, this is not a legal case but a moral case also whether the hindus should challenge uh, uh, their sites the occupation of the sites in kashi and vishwanath sir over to you sir yeah uh, to be short uh, the uh, decision about uh, the cut off date and other thing is actually legislative in nature and now uh, the act having been upheld by the court it hasn't done anything uh, nobody actually challenged the validity of the act in the supreme court court uh, high court has made some observations on that and kept it a bit open ended but supreme court has elevated it and then uh, said that that act it gave its uh, stamp but then really speaking the correctness of it is not directly challenged in any court of law so i believe now recently some petitions have been filed over a period of time now uh, the validity of the act will now be seen by the supreme court if it is challenged in two perspectives one is has it actually been upheld by the supreme court when it referred to it in the ayodhya judgment is it a case where the judgment the statute arose directly in a challenge or it is a affirmation of it passingly in the ayodhya judgment and secondly even otherwise also the validity of a statute can be challenged on many grounds which are constitutional grounds which could be done uh, when there is a, a right of access and right of uh, worship and that could be established even on the principles which ayodhya judgment itself lays down at many places so then the court will look into it court will look into it and it is for the court to take a call on that so it is open ended and based on that only uh, uh, the hindus can approach courts for kashi and vishwanath also sir uh, based on that interpretation uh, sir there are a lot of questions for you but uh, i believe you are in a hurry so there is one question uh, which a lot of people have been asking sir they want to understand the first of all the meaning of adverse possession and the claims for proprietorship as in the judicial parlance and why is it difficult for the courts to uh i mean except the hindu traditions this is a question asked by a lot of people because we have seen that even the british jurisprudence uh they regarded the hindu traditions hindu scriptures they gave certain kind of legality uh, i mean there are a lot of cases uh, pre 1947 also why is it so difficult for us now for uh, us to tell our courts and convince them of uh, this aspect the hindu hindu tradition and hindu rites and hindu script, scriptures aspects sir see this your question is relating to article 25 and 26 of the constitution right. those are the two constitutional provisions on the basis of which a right of religion is exercised by anybody uh, initially uh, the there are two major issues arising one is that right to religion was the question then then that leads to an inquiry as to what is religion right i'm using that expression quote unquote religion constitution uses that in english now religion is again defined in dictionaries so the court looked into dictionaries and said what religion is that is a definition which fits in abrahamic religions so it doesn't take within its fourfold what is the practice of even religion the concept of a religion itself is very different for us for hindus it's a practice it's a, it's a civilization there is nothing like a religion as west had thought about so in that context of understanding what religion is many interpretations took place many restrictions occurred then there was another aspect of it that is a vocabulary problem that we have first one i have just highlighted second relates to the reformative perspective that the court had there were certain practices which the court thought were not 
quote unquote again civilized and uh, there were practices such as untouchability practices such as non entry into temples so these are aspects which needed reformation definitely it needed reformation in which cases the court took a stride and entered into the realm of practice there it was justified statutory constitutionally it provided certain uh, specific measures with respect to temple and other things so for doing that the court developed a concept called integral part of religion it bifurcated the religion into two parts one is what is the integral part of religion and once you identify the non integral part is there once you have a non integral part there was no restrictions for a state so therefore they weaned the, they they created a binary and they did that and a large number of practices large number of uh, aspects like uh, um anand margis could dance on the road which their traditional thing of kapala dance court said that that's not part of your your integral part of your religion once you said that then entry became easier so like that step by step step by step it was possible for a court to get into it which was not possible for a court with respect to a minority religion which is given that kind of a freedom so therefore it was a free access so far as the hindu religion is concerned so it happened for a very long time now virtually it enabled the states to uh take over and nationalize religion you have in every state acts which are passed by the state legislatures which takes over temples appoints the head priests appoints everybody is an employment and salaries are given the uh, money which is come which is come uh, which comes into the temple by way of offerings are accounted it can be utilized in whichever way because there are government executive officers who are appointed they take a call so it's become virtually redundant so it is the interpretation so i am answering your question it is the kind of interpretation that the court gave maybe with a good intention initially that reformation is needed and their perspective that religion is to be bifurcated as secular and non secular non secular part of it they said we will leave it at that but there also the the court interfered and it's an issue of interpretation of the constitution which has gone on for about 70 years now right this is this is the reason interpretation i would put it a simple answer is interpretation of a court so therefore this is people have fought for it fought for the religious rights and um, large number of judgments are binding on us so therefore this has led to the reference of uh, these judgments to for reconsideration to a nine judge bench which will perhaps hear and uh, bring about some kind of a sanity in the approach of uh, religious practices but as you said this is open to interpretation uh, we we wish that uh, uh, the uh, other benches have a different opinion uh, as regard to sir there is one more question yes. which is related yeah yes sir uh, i just have uh, two quick yes, questions sir. to nasima uh just nasima uh, garu one question is uh, this usage of the word non islamic structure beneath uh, the masjid uh why was it so difficult for them to call it a hindu temple that's the first uh, uh, question and uh, the second thing is uh, we were pretty much amazed with the fact that uh, it was a unanimous judgment uh i mean we did expect that <laughs> there would be one or two uh just based on their proclivity in the past that uh, it could be a majority judgment but we were very happy to note that this was a uh a unanimous judgment so i just wanted your comment if you can on the second point but the first point definitely what your views are no no the second point is a is a is a very important point that is why i was my initial remarks about this judgment were it's a phenomenal statesmanship of the court because this judgment is not an ordinary judgment it's a highly emotional issue it's a very sentimental issue it uh, affects large number of people so therefore the responsibility of the supreme court and each of the judges of the supreme court was phenomenal phenomenal so therefore they, they this is a, 
uh, judgment by itself because normally they, they express view and matter ends there because each one can give his opinion and matter ends there but then the consequences of this judgment were so large so therefore they had to take a common view on that and uh, they worked very hard on that. they worked very hard on that they have lots of i i assume a lot of give and take between the perspective of each judge and um, i wish it becomes a benchmark for uh, many decisions to take in fact this has been the practice i was in uh, uh, in uh, canada representing uh, a supreme there is a exchange program between the supreme court of america and india so in a conference the chief justice of the canadian uh, supreme court has said that much of their time goes away in crafting a reconciled judgment it seems so most of the supreme court judges of canadian supreme court sit down after the hearing is over and they discuss amongst themselves and then arrive at a judgment which is acceptable to all which accommodates the plurality of views so therefore this is one of those there were when the matter was being heard we know um, uh, for every view there were uh, as many as five perspectives of five judges but then they all sat together and then worked on it so it's a phenomenal thing it's a phenomenal thing that they have worked together and i had i was i took pains to explain to you how many declarations how many uh, specific findings were given in favor of muslim parties nobody talks of that as lawyers and as constitutional lawyers what is important for us is not the relief that has been given the relief which is given affected the uh, present position of ram janmabhoomi that's all nothing more but what the judgment has done is it lays down a precedent that is declaration of law that declaration of law will hold the field in times to come so right or wrong good or bad people will challenge the validity if you go to the court then the law is always a constant process by which it keeps growing it keeps correcting itself so therefore uh, you are absolutely uh, right in asking me to uh, uh, react to this unanimity in the judgment it's a phenomenal feature it's a phenomenal feature they worked on it and you have seen how balanced it is and on the question of non islamic structure um asi report stopped short of definitely saying that there was a ram janmabhoomi underneath nobody can say no archaeologist can ever say that there was a temple but then court stopped at that the conclusions are obvious you know, because there was uh, um what is what something called the panugot uh, that is uh, in a shiva temple the kapala or something they called it pranal pranal ah pranal pranal yes that's right i forgot that that was discovered so therefore there was no doubt about this fact but then you know what happens is that uh, in every inquiry into any fact the contesting parties throw doubts for everything you will say okay it is not merely uh, hindu structures buddhism was there prevalent for a very long time jainism was there there could be jain temple there could be hindu temple so you keep throwing doubts on everything and anything which is what the modern mental the modern thinking is all about so you question everything you doubt everything you don't arrive at a conclusion so when you cast doubt on everything then it becomes extremely difficult for courts to come to conclusions so they have to tread very very carefully this is what the court did it they tread very very carefully and to the extent possible they have gone on and then gave a clear finding that for our purposes for our purposes it is to be seen whether it is an islamic structure or not as long as it is not islamic structure it does not grant any credibility to the mosque so they gave that finding that far and no further and then left it for other other things to be concluded by the court on the basis of other evidence available so it's all a piece of evidence
That's one, one uh, small personal question. Did you sleep on the night of the judgment? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir, as professional lawyers, it makes no difference. <laughs> we all, so we all, yes, we all uh, <laughs> argued, but then it's a, you know, the beautiful experience uh, because we worked on uh, uh, Mondays to Fridays continuously. Sometimes we worked on Saturday. We had extended hours and uh, it was uh, definitely stressful. It was definitely stressful during the court proceedings. During the court proceedings, uh, it was stressful more than uh, I was told that the hearing in uh, Allahabad was uh, very calm, peaceful, and the lawyers argued it very comfortably with Chisla. But here in Supreme Court, again, as I told you, as uh, Minakshi Ji was laboring to tell us the role of uh, left intellectuals who take over who take over virtually and uh, complete control over such matters. And I don't know how much our friends, uh, Muslim friends had. They take over and it becomes a completely different cup of tea. It's an intellectual war. So it was not an easy job. But then we kept our cool, I should say. We kept our cool. <laughs> we didn't lose it. Thank you. Because uh, sir, uh, before Narasimhaji leaves, uh, one uh, Mr. Anshu Tandon, he himself is a great scholar from Lucknow. He wants to know how to access your two books. He's interested in your two books. So can you please name the books and the publishers, please? <laughs> uh, the Mahabharata is published by Bharti Vidya Bhav. So any of the Bharti Vidya Bhav shops will get it. Okay. And, uh, ask him to... I, I, uh, I'll, you can uh, send his number. Yeah, sir. Yeah, sir. I will do that. that somehow he can take his take my number. Yeah, sir. Mr. Harikuran or uh, Srinivas will have it. I will see that the book reaches him. Okay, sir. And the other one, sir. There are two books. No, one is on Mahabharata. The, the other one, one uh, Mahabharata is available in the Bharti Vijayavaram. Okay, sir. Okay. The sir. other one I can send it to him. Okay, sir. So thank you so much, sir. Uh, sir. I have some questions for Meenakshi ji, but before that, I would like to come to Ashok, sir. Sir. Uh, अशोक सर Sir, uh, one... after that, ha, after, after that, yeah, after that we can end. Okay, okay. No one, one question is there, ma'am. Uh, I'll come to that immediately okay. after Ashok sir's okay. question. So okay. it, it, I don't think Ashok sir will take a long time in answering that. It is a yes or a no kind of <laughs> question, sir. One thing which emerged very clearly from Narasimha sir's exposition is that even the courts admit that. the fate of ram janmabhoomi would have been very different if it was still under the adverse possession or so to say the structure was still there on the site uh, this we came to know there in a way we are not discussing the criminality or the non criminality of the issue in a way it is a validation of the activism which took place over there so how does it take i mean uh, when we say about kashi and mathura uh, does it come to that stage and only then the courts will come in and intervene and what is the course for vhp kind of activism with regard to kashi and mathura okay first of all i think on the sri ram janmabhoomi itself uh, as you know one we have to understand it is an andolan uh, it's a movement i think uh, and uh, not just brick and mortar the ethos of that movement i think the ethos of that movement has been very well I think explained by Vijayendra Naipal in his interview in uh, Times of India in July 1993. Uh, you know that that he gave quite an extensive interview, and I personally okay in a found it okay that he went right to the heart of the ethos. I you know I don't think that you know anybody anybody anywhere could have explained it in a more lucid manner than the way that he has done. And subsequently, okay, uh, uh, Kameshwar Chowpal, who laid the first foundation, uh, the foundation brick on November ninth, nineteen 
1989, uh, and who's also now the trustee of that uh, Sri Ram Janmabhoomi Kirti Chetra Trust. He gave two interviews, uh, one just before the judgment and of November 9, 2019, and one immediately after that. Oh, there. there also he went into the ethos of, ethos of the movie. So that's why we have to say that it has gone okay, beyond bricks and mortar. At the same time, I would also say, I think both the presentation from Meenakshi ji and Ina uh, Narasimha ji, you know, really went also beyond the bricks and mortar. Uh, they went into so much particular things, okay, to just not see. They went into the civilizational aspects of the moment. And I'm very happy to see that in Narasimha ji's presentation, that all these issues were placed before the court. And all those particular issues placed before the court and the basis of which, okay, the court gave judgment. Uh, and as, as he himself has said in this question and answer, I think just before he left, uh, left had to leave. Uh, you know, see, uh, there are certain aspects of jurisprudence, okay, that have been set up uh, in this particular, uh, uh, in, in this judgment. Uh, he also mentioned that there's a nine, uh, uh, this nine judge bench uh, that is looking at certain of the constitutional aspects aspects of this. And laws are laws have to be dynamic. Uh, you know, at one time, okay, like think uh, many years ago, if you look at in the uh, election, the eligibility of the voter uh, issue was very restricted. Uh, it had to be depend upon your education, on your income and various aspects. Today, okay, we have a universal uh, franchise. Uh, yeah, one time, okay, the, the voting was about 21. Today, now, say they say it's about 18. So these laws are to be changed, okay, and have to be modified, have, have to be rectified. That places of worship act at a particular time had to, you know, maybe okay, the you know, the government then felt necessity to uh, to to put it in place, but then nothing like something say casting stone, because. For us, okay, the Ram Janmabhumi, Krishna Janmabhumi, and Kashi Vishwanath are not just temples, are not just a, a structure that exists. It what it represents. Uh, as I said, I gave this example of the Stalin statue uh, in uh, Prague. Uh, I gave the example of the uh, in Russian Orthodox Church in Warsaw. Uh, and, and you can see so many other particular uh, uh, you know, places that have been, okay, like think uh, when people have become free and they have had the opportunity now then okay to uh, to come and exercise their own right on on those the civilizational right these are not just a question of legality these are not a question only of question of historicity it's also a question of civilizational right, right the faith that is there and i think many of these aspects okay uh, uh, narsimha rao ji has explained okay so nicely uh, you know, see, as you rightly said, I think as uh, I think Srinivas said that it, uh, you, you know, he did not make it into bland, uh, you know, legal pre presentation. He went okay beyond okay the le legality of it. So we now need to look sit at it. Also, more importantly, okay, like think I think everybody, particularly I think those who are say opposed to the civilizational heritage. Okay, of our civilization, you know, of our country, that is the Hindu civilization heritage. It's particularly those those people have also got to recognize. You see, what is the particular significance of all the particular places? It's the historical, whether you talk about history, the way okay history was taught, like uh, about uh, Shivaji. Okay, was considered uh, when I was studying uh, in uh, in a school in the late 50s, Shivaji was said to be a mountain rat. Uh, you know, see, now it was only in 2005 I, I found out how that term came because that is what uh, Aurangzeb had said, Sayadri uh, uh, Kachua. You know, you know, so it's a, a, you know, a rat in the Sayadri range. Uh, but that, you know, that meaning of the Sayadri Kachua was taught to us. Uh, you know, see, but that, but it did not impact us like that. We used to put our chest out and say, Shivaji was a mountain rat. Okay, not that, not the way they they meant it. We meant it something different. So this is a you know Samaj okay works in a dynamic manner. You need to have a proper mantan. You need to have a calm mantan. Uh, I'm happy also to Narsimhaji okay when he said that despite the provocation okay from the leftists during the court hearings okay the Hindu the Hindu lawyers okay took up the issue very calmly and I can uh, as from Vishwanath Parishad okay knowing okay what was the, uh, you know how the uh, other particular lawyers also okay like performed. 
I can attest to that fact that they did take up the case very calmly, very nicely, and in the way it should be done, in the true spirit of a Hindu mantra. Uh, ma'am, uh, coming to you, Meenakshi, ma'am. Uh, there are uh, two, three questions which are not, I mean, they are one, one line kind of answers they will require. So first of all, Sahana Singh ji, uh, author Sahana Singh, she's asking, is there any record of a masjid being destroyed by Hindus in history? Huh? Shivaji, he fought a very bitter battle against Aurangzeb and the Mughals. Yes. And there's no record of him ever touching a masjid. And then, ma'am, there is a question by Vipul Bansal. Uh, whether there existed any temple before the one built by Vikramaditya? Is there any record of historical record of it? Where? In Ayodhya, ma'am. Ayodhya, ma'am. See, uh, okay. The Gupta, see, I mean, the, the, there is a Gupta period temple which is supposed to have been there. Yes, the but what I'm, I just want to say that the ASI excavations. Yes showed that that site was occupied from the second millennium BC. Right, right. Well before that. Okay. And then when there is a question which needs a little uh, uh, greater elaboration. Many people have asked about the Buddhist claim on the site, Ayodhya. No, no. So this is a very important question. Yes. All the holy cities of India, you will find Jain, Buddhist and Hindu structures existing alongside. At Ajanta, Elora, this at Khajurao, you'll find Hindu and Jain temples. This myth that uh, a city would have temples only of either Hindus or Buddhists or Jains is incorrect because these sites were revered sites of all people. Buddha is also associated with Ayodhya. He is not associated with that particular site in Ayodhya. Right. Jain Tirthankars were born in Ayodhya. Ayodhya is important for Jains. But that particular site is the Janambhumi. No Buddhist is saying that that is a Buddhist site. And the excavations of the ASI did not reveal any Buddhist artifact from there at all. The Buddhist stupas and all have been referred to by Chinese travelers who came there. The Jains themselves have recorded the sanctity of Ayodhya. Ayodhya was a big city. We're talking about that particular site. That particular site was sacred to Ram. And this is a part of a deliberate attempt, you know, to divide the wide Hindu family. That this was a Jain site, this was a... Khajurao has Jain temples and Hindu temples in that same complex. The Jains were ministers of the Hindu kings of Khajurao. There was no conflict. At Ajanta, Elora, you'll find Hindu, Buddhist, Jain structures alongside. Can I just, add, can I just add one, uh, one more thing? If you look at in Delhi itself, the Kuatul Islam, uh, the, the placard okay, that is saved, that this has been made okay, from the remains of 27 Hindu and Jain temples. Absolutely. At, so the Kawat al-Islam, which is called Might of Islam, that complex itself okay, had both Hindu and Jain temples and 27 in numbers. You know, yes. these are, so it has to be a very large particular site. But this is a very important point you have made, ma'am. There are no layers as such, uh, like uh, one period and then there is a subjugation no. of one sort no. by yeah. So, and even now we see, you know, there is in Dharmasthala, Karnataka, the same family manages both the temples, the Jain yes. temples, and this has been a tradition yes. with us. Yes. So, I think yes. uh, uh, we, we are all right. <laughs> so, I will hand it back to Srinivas Garu. <laughs> Srinivas Ji? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, Hanan's, the number of questions have actually increased from the time you started. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure there are follow-up questions to follow-up questions and this can go on. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, thank you very much, Vikas Ji. And uh, uh, sir, uh, the way you answered his very loaded question. Ashokji, <laughs> 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 Ashokji, Ashok the way he answered, you know, it shows, uh, you know, for the future generations, how to handle these sort of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was, I was very impressed, sir. And uh, Thank you very much, ma'am. I think uh, 
you have in a short time very brilliantly you know demonstrated you know how uh, you know one should actually present evidence so not just actually do the research but actually present evidence <laughs> to you. conclusively argue for something you know yes, so that uh, there's no further doubt of any sort you know that is left yeah. in one's mind Uh, so we are really lucky to you know have you uh, sri narsimha ji and sri ashok chogle ji uh, you know with us today just uh, two to three days away uh, from the great event and uh, vikas ji was telling me that how his family starting today until the 5th they are going to be doing an akhanda ramayana parayanam uh, yeah yeah and i'm sure that's going to happen throughout the country and uh, you know i am very fortunate you know for actually conducting this event on this uh, great day and uh, i'm sure indica this is one of the great moments of indica academy uh, you know itself as an organization to be able to actually conducting such an event on such a, a great you know auspicious um, eve you know that uh, is you know, about to you know happen in our country's uh, history and uh, closing an issue which has been around for almost you know 500 uh, years and yes. i think this will just open the gates for quick and um, you know peaceful resolution of you know most of the you know other things you know other you know matters you know which are still you know pending you know at this point in time um harikiran ji if you can just make a closing remarks then probably we could um, um hello yeah yeah no you are absolutely right uh, it is it is uh, like i was mentioning to you on the whatsapp it is indeed uh, i mean this is uh, seriously one of the highlights of what uh, we have done in the last 5 years and uh, i do recall 3 uh, years back when we had that session with meenakshi ji on on flight of date is where all of us were in tears and uh, this event also is uh, fairly overwhelming and uh, i'm sure a lot of us uh, had moist eyes uh, when she was presenting uh, so thank you very much uh, uh, minakshi ji it was uh, thank you excited. thank you for inviting me thank you for inviting thank you uh, ashok ji thank you very much yeah and i'd like to again um, uh, please you know uh, remind all our uh, uh, viewers that uh, we have um, the the part 2 of the webinar on august 9th 9:30 to 12:30 um the interlocutors would be shafali vaidya abhinav agarwal dr swadesh singh and hari prasad and this would be a discussion on all the books of uh, 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 meenakshi jain ji and also her current research and upcoming uh, publications so um once again i uh, uh, thank uh, everybody uh, for uh, uh, being here with us today and um, just one second we look forward to your presence in our upcoming you know future uh, uh, such events thank you very much and jai shri ram jai shri ram jai shri ram jai shri ram thank you so much jai shri ram jai shri ram jai shri ram jai shri ram